In this episode, we're having a conversation with Gada Osman, Miracosta's interim mental health counseling supervisor. Looking at a strange outer world can further complicate our inner world. Let's see if we can try to make sense of both. So welcome, Gada. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Uh, we want to start by giving you just a little space to um, kind of introduce yourself, speak to a little bit of what you were doing before all this stuff happened, um, and then we can get into what's going on now. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me this morning. So I'm Gada Osman. I'm the interim full-time faculty member overseeing the mental health counseling program at Miracosta College. So typically our mental health counseling program is one in which students come in for success, up to six sessions a semester of regular counseling, as well as um, any number of drop-in sessions that um, may be something that they wanna come in for where they wanna address a particular issue kind of in a one-time slot. And we're a team of 10 mental health counselors and um, we also run a few groups on campus, and I'll talk a little bit more um, in a moment about the groups that we're running now. After spring break, once we all went remote, then we also have gone remotely and are offering our services remotely. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah, and with that, so, you know, the services that you provide, I know that, you know, I try to make them, uh, make students aware of them and students refer other students, which is great. And coming in for those appointments, as sometimes I would walk a student over there. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in this remote setting that we're all in? Yeah, so in some ways, of course, it looks very different, and in some ways, it's pretty similar. So one of the things that I think is really valuable and something to treasure about Miracosta College is the care that faculty and staff have for students. And so a lot of the interactions that we have with students have been historically faculty initiated. So like you mentioned, Sean, a faculty member walking a student over, for example, and um, kind of handing them, having a warm handoff over to us for a session. Right now, we are offering um, counseling sessions, both via Zoom and on the phone for folks who feel more comfortable with that. And with Zoom, we can have the option of having the video and the audio on, or the video off, or even the video and the audio off and using the chat function for privacy. So we're aware that right now, for a lot of folks, there isn't a lot of privacy at home. Mm -hmm. And to make sure that there's a way that they can connect with us, then having that possibility be there too. We've had, heard that from a lot of students who say, I want counseling sessions, and either I don't have the privacy or what I wanted to talk about is actually, you know, someone, my family member, for example, who now is right here during my counseling session. Yeah. And so our outreach to students is still as active as before. So anytime that we hear from a faculty member, for example, about any concerns, whether through a care referral or just in general, more informally through an email, et cetera, then we'll reach out to the students. So in that way, it's very similar to what we were um how we were working on the ground, if you will, with that warm handoff. So up until um or from spring break on up until the present moment and up until the end of the semester, that's always a possibility that anyone can say to us, okay, the student, I'm concerned about them, here's what's going on. And we'll usually say, please fill out a care referral form. Then we also have that record. And at the same time, we'll reach out to the student and see if they wanna schedule six regular sessions. We just about have six weeks till the end of the semester for um, six regular weekly sessions or schedule a one-time session or a, combine, a combination of both. Yeah, and so we, um, 
one of our, our earlier episodes this semester, we had a student speak to their experience with counseling in these six sessions and, and really uh, expressed kind of how transformative they were, how powerful they were for uh, him. Um, so I'm curious, just in what you just said, there's five or six weeks left. Uh, is there an opportunity if a student is really benefiting from these services? Can that bleed into the summer or, or are there uh, during the summer session, are there opportunities? How, do, how would that work? Yes. So we do offer six sessions per semester, and that includes the summer. So any student that's registered at any term, whether fall, spring, or the summer, can come in and benefit from sessions. And sometimes people don't realize that the summer is its own term, if you will. And yeah, absolutely. A student can come back. Um, if the sessions end up being um, sessions that were at the end of the semester, the student can still continue into the summer. So end the packet, the sort of the episode of care, as we'd refer to it, of the six weeks this semester, and then start right up again in the summer. So those, those are definitely possibilities. The other piece to this that I'll say right now is having gone remote and most um, places have offering services remotely, students, even though we typically have a wait list and students might need to wait for a little bit for the regular six sessions, it's still a way faster turnaround mm -hmm. than most other opportunities in the area. Mm -hmm. So private practices aside, um, most areas now, I mean, most um, services now, agencies, et cetera, have a pretty long wait list for telehealth. And with us, students can get in still relatively quickly and definitely very quickly for the one-time session, at least while they're waiting on the wait list for maybe one, two weeks tops at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, I'm glad you brought up the telehealth because that's become a really, really popular in social work and in other areas. Uh, recently, right? And uh, for the availability, the, the ease of it, convenience maybe. And can you talk a little bit about maybe from your professional opinion, what the differences are, the distinctions between the two, and what kind of um, service that students in our case, but people can expect in telehealth versus actually coming in in person? Sure. So one of the things, of course, that happens with telehealth is that there is a little bit of a restriction in terms of how much, if you will, of, the, of an interaction is taking place beyond the visual and the immediate auditory. And so when it comes to particular modalities that a therapist might use, then telehealth may not lend itself to as many modalities, let's say, as an in-person session does. Mm. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are the connectivity issues, and we know all about that, that in the middle of a session, you know, somebody can lose connection, etc. So that, those are definitely some of the drawbacks. On the other hand, there are a few other things about it, right? So it's definitely, it's convenient. It allows for a certain type of access that's a little bit different from coming into the office, and that's both something that's... Um, an advantage and at the same time can be a challenge for both the therapist and the student, right? So if I'm sitting here in my home and if you were to see more of my home, if I were the client, that's insight. And we've definitely, that's something that we've really noted over the past couple of weeks is getting to know a little bit more about our students firsthand. Right. And for the student, they also get to see a little bit of the counselor's world, right? Just like they see the faculty member's world and what the person chooses to bring forward. And that's an opportunity for connection there as well. And so I think it's, it's, 
it's a way of counseling that in some ways can feel a little less personal because there isn't as much of the nonverbal cues that we might pick up on in person, especially if there's a little bit of a delay, especially if the student doesn't have access um, to a visual or at least a visual that's particularly smooth. And at the same time, it does allow for more of that connection because of being in the student's home. The other piece that I think is very relevant for telehealth now that makes telehealth in this moment very different from telehealth elsewhere is the fact that for all of us, for the person giving the counseling and for the person receiving the counseling, we're all in very similar situations. Mm, so yeah. sometimes folks right now wanna talk about other things that are going on and at the same time, whether in a small scale or really the overarching scale, we actually are sharing this very real moment in time. Yeah. And that's something that is powerful while at the same time, of course, also a little disconcerting that a lot of the time for counseling, you know, the student wants to feel that the counselor has the answer to this. And in that case, in this case, for us as counselors, this is a moment where we're experiencing this with a student and how are we in this together? And that also makes telehealth and mental health counseling in this moment unique compared to previous experiences in the past, in my personal experience, at least. Yeah, that sounds like there's a real uh, potential for relationship building. And I know that that counseling is a, is a very specific situation. Um, um, but but still, I could see, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, sort of the cohering moment that we're all living through, that that, that in and of itself can can maybe accommodate for a, a lack of personability. That's what you're speaking to right now with these, mm -hmm. these, these modalities. So, but that makes me, I'd like to ask you, uh, for these six sessions, is it likely that a person would be working with the same counselor consistently, or is it often a different counselor, depending on who's available? And, and, if, and if a student was already in this program and is now wanting to get back, do they have a chance to maybe request someone they were working with before? Yes. So the six sessions are six weeks in a row, barring any holidays in the middle or any absence on the part of the counselor with the same counselor. Typically, too, if someone came in for one of the one-time drop-in sessions, and they're not really necessarily one-time as in you only have access to them one time, but more that they're kind of their own self-contained entity, that it's the one session. Okay. Students who come in for that, we still will do our best if the fit was there to try to schedule them regularly with the same counselor. And of course, that depends on availability, but if it's a possibility at all, we try to make it happen. Certainly students can request particular counselors, whether their request is based on the fact that they worked with this person before and they felt it was a good fit, or whether their request is based on something else. So we have the bios of our counselors, and if somebody feels like, oh, okay, this person would be a fit for me, they can request to work with that counselor. Sometimes people, in order to balance it out a little bit and give themselves a, ch a higher chance of being able to access sessions earlier, will look through the bios and say, okay, one of these three folks feel like they maybe that's a person who'd be a fit for me, and then we work to schedule them with one of those people that they felt was a good fit for them. We have a, you know, very diverse counselor group um, with a lot of different experiences, different backgrounds in many different ways. And so we hope as much as possible that our counselor group can kind of reflect our student population and some of the needs, emphases, um, aspects that would be important for our student population. 
Cool. Um, I want to backtrack a little bit because you talked about this, you know, using the video and in, in Zoom. We're using Zoom right now, and there's a ton of articles coming out about Zoom. There's a ton of articles coming out about uh, this remote learning and and how it impacts students and and instructors. And I think about looking, you know, being, you know, that insight that you say when you get to see kind of the background or where they're um, conducting their their Zoom session and things like that. Because when they come to campus, students, you know, they, they just like all of us, have that presentation of self that they prepare and, and this is what they want to show at school. And then when you're at home, it's a lot different. And, and like you said, you get to see things that may be helpful in, in that setting. But then can you also speak to like what could be harmful about, you know, requiring Zoom or requiring that you see a student and, and you see their home and, and, and the environment that they're uh, using this platform. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, as you're alluding to Sean, this works both ways, right? So a student can choose to have someone come into their home and the student can choose to show a person certain aspects of their home. And that's what we had before this shift to remote learning and remote work is that that was a choice. So in general, if a student signed up for an online class or with telehealth, if a student signed up for remote sessions, they had made that choice. And now we're in a situation where that's not the case. The choice is really between this and nothing. So with classes, really, unless a student decides to withdraw from the class or from the semester, they have to move in this direction. With telehealth, we have absolutely experienced some shifts. So some students have said that I really can only do counseling in person for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is that I want to be in your office. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be at home. I don't want to be sharing from my home. I don't want to even be sitting on the phone in my car and feeling kind of pressed in if that's not a space where I feel particularly comfortable, never mind if that's not even an option. Right. So yeah, that that definitely has created a choice for some students when it comes to telehealth of weighing whether this is something that I want to do, even as blank as I can make it, right? So I can change my background and I can sit here and choose to sit there, but still, I only have so many options and is this necessarily what I want to bring forward? I think there, there's a lot to be written and a lot to be explored here, kind of psychologically and sociologically about this moment in time and what, what it opens up and what it closes off. And at the same time, of all the moments in time for this to be happening, at least there are some options now compared to if this had been 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's really it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And the, the other choice before this was that students would come into our classrooms and agree to our value systems that we impose upon those classrooms. Now that's inverted, right? We're forcing our classrooms into their houses and our policies, however it is we're managing this remote learning, um, can be pretty intrusive in that space, depending on. So, Gata, would you is there is there something we can be doing as faculty, small or large? Um, um, to validate students' choices, um, I think, like abstractly. So like, is there like a message we can send out to validate their, their choices? And also practically, like at the beginning of a Zoom session, um, are there things that we can be doing to just, just allow the student to feel empowered, right? 
um, um, and, 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 and so be able to engage the learning process more effectively. I think one of the things that's really important to acknowledge is the difficulty of this moment in time. So this is ultimately actually a moment of trauma, right? So trauma is when something is happening that we don't have the resources to be able to deal with. And for whatever reason, those resources may already have been challenged previously. So whether emotionally, practically, financially, et cetera. And so this is a point where, yeah, there is that overwhelming amount of stress that's exceeding for really pretty much all of us, right? Our ability to cope and to integrate what's happening. And that includes then trying from this place to focus on academic work. So whenever we're over sort of we're overwhelmed emotionally, right? The part of our brain that's up and running and paying more attention, the limbic brain is not a fit for then trying to take in information mm. and do coursework. Mm. And I read somewhere, and then actually ever since um, we connected about this podcast, I was trying to find it and I couldn't find the source. And I, um, if I find it, I'll let you know, but somewhere that actually suggested giving 25% of the workload previously assigned to students. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that calculation was ultimately because probably that's about the absorption mm -hmm. level that is realistic at this wow. point in time, and especially this late in the semester. Mm -hmm. So I think at the beginning of a session and in outlining what's to be expected, really acknowledging how challenging this is, and especially when we combine it with some of the logistical difficulties. So for example, with using the waiting room function, we're experiencing this a lot as we do sessions, right? So it absolutely is not practically feasible for an instructor to be watching the waiting room all the time. And so it makes sense to at some point say, okay, that's it. And at the same time, there are some major connection problems that student ha students have. And the gap that we have in terms of access for students is can also be pretty apparent where folks try to get in, can't get in, keep getting drops because of their internet connection. We've had this happen a lot with telehealth sessions, for example. And so just acknowledging all the frustration in that and all the difficulty with that. I think another piece to really note too for classes that have migrated to being online that before were brick and mortar, if you will, is that these were students that for whatever reason chose that format in general rather than the online one. And there was something about that format that felt like it fit them more. It might be a logistical. It might be that they didn't want to deal with as much technology. It might be emotional and social that they wanted more interaction with their classmates face to face. But for whatever reason, with this shift, for a lot of students for whom there was the option of studying online, they actually are being pushed into a situation that they specifically chose to move away from earlier on. And I think that's something that's really important to acknowledge too. Yeah. To really yeah. hold space for that and for the learning experience emotionally, not just the learning experience of the technicalities of how to use Zoom and how to you know, fit all the, the pieces in terms of fulfilling assignments and that this is ongoing. So the emotional impact is still there, even when we figure out the logistics of how to work with the platform. Mm -hmm. And that will continue to be there and continue to emphasize the recognition of that. Yeah. And, and I like that you brought up trauma. You know, we, 
I, I get the feeling that we shouldn't just pretend that everything's fine and we're just carrying on. And, you know, this kind of notion of we're going to get through this and we're going to make it work can also kind of equate to we're going to do everything that we were planning previously. And like you're saying, I feel like that could be detrimental to um, the student and to the instructor to have these expectations when so much is in flux and so much is uncertain. And so, you know, I know that there are models of different stages when people are coming to terms with a crisis or when people are experiencing major life changes and transitions. So can you talk a little bit about those significant stages and, and what we should be aware of that people are going through and even ourselves, what we're going through that we may not know or be able to articulate and are there consequences to not honoring those stages and pretending that everything's fine? And then maybe kind of at the end of that, how, how do we deal with these major transitions and how do we best be of service to students at this time too? Absolutely. So one of the things I think that can be a little challenging for us um, sort of culturally in general is that we are very much a culture of um, positivity and we can be a culture of forced positivity and we can be a culture of what can be referred to as toxic positivity, where um, we want things to be great and wonderful right away. And we don't tend to really allow room for any kind of holding of difficult emotions. We want to get on the other side of it and whether that's through numbing out or through so literally turning to something else in order to numb out, or just trying to bypass the whole thing. And that happens um, a lot when we're talking about emotional health is people will say things like, well, I just want to get over this. I just want to get through this. I want to be done with it. I want to be on the other side of this. That, you know, to a large extent, we appreciate relatively instant gratification. And we don't tend to have a lot of room for really being with difficult processes. And there are many models that talk about stages of dealing with difficult situations, stages of grief, et cetera. So one of the most well-known models in dealing with stages of grief is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model on grief that talks about the stages of grief that basically are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Stages of grief aren't linear. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like I start somewhere and I come out the other side of something, but rather that I move back and forth. Mm -hmm. And usually the start of any sort of process involves a sense of numbness and a sense of disbelief. Mm. And we're in a situation right now that's still unfolding, right? So the news over the past week, we finally heard the thought that, oh, okay, maybe this is the peak. Mm -hmm. right. Up until that point, we kept hearing the peak is still coming. It's still coming. We're still not there yet. So the trauma is still unfolding, but not only is it unfolding in terms of its uncertainty and we don't know where the end is. So we have this date of May 15th for the safer at home you know, process right now. And we don't know how long that's going to go mm -hmm. for potentially past that. 
But we also, not only do we not know where the end date is, but we also have been told that we're not even sure where we're at in the process. So it's not like it's moving along and then it'll end. It's like, oh, maybe it'll actually, we'll hear about more cases before all of that. All of this is to say that the process is very much unfolding even now. So it's not like I'm at a situation right now where I can say, oh, okay, I'm beginning to adjust compared to where I was two weeks ago. We can say this, right, and Curry and I, you and I were talking a little bit before we started that maybe on the work front, we've made some adjustments so that we feel we're settling into a process a little more smoothly. That's just one area of our lives. But the rest of our life, when I go and get go to the supermarket, when I run this errand, that errand, I'm still very aware of the changes that are coming to place. I'm seeing more people with masks than I did last week, for example. So that's all unfolding. That's all to say that that very first piece, the piece that has to do with the numbness and the disbelief might still be going on all this time, yeah, that right. we might all still be here and it wouldn't be surprising for us to still be here. Yeah. We haven't integrated even that yet potentially because it's still unfolding. Yeah, right. So when we talk about moving through any kind of stage, typically any model of change has some version of a pattern where something was going on in your life and then it changed and there's upheaval and then you settle into it. We're still in that change. And so we're not going to get to some sort of settling until the change actually shifts. Now, occasionally, Folks will say, oh, well, I've kind of adjusted, you know, I'm just focusing on my life and my needs. And especially if they don't have um, immediate security concerns of any sort. So actually, I'm just doing my life and I'm good and I accept what's going on. That may be the case. And maybe for a few folks, that's the case. A lot of the time, what we need to watch out for, too, when we just block out information like that, is to make sure that that's also not a form of denial and a form right. of numbness. Mm, yeah. And that's not to suggest that denial or numbness is something to be avoided. It's it's the contrary. It's recognizing it as something that, that's very, very natural and a very natural part of the process. And that will be moving back and forth. I know for myself, there are times where I'm focused on my work and that's my world. And I'm not as focused on what's happening in the bigger picture. And then there are other times where I come out of that and I'm like, this is part of this much bigger picture. That's why I'm hanging out here in, my, in this context, talking with you rather than at Maricosta College on campus. And it's, it's a realization all over again because we're still adjusting to the new normal. And so I think one of the most important things for all of us, and that includes those of us who's, who also are working with somebody else, such as, for example, all of us working with students, is to recognize there are all these processes and all these back and forths and all these new factors that are happening for all of us and for all of our students. And making sure that we really allow the space for that and recognizing, yeah, this process is not linear. There's a lot of back and forth and making sure that we're allowing room for and flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that denial, like holding on to emotions, I think, so you could properly address them and work with them. You know, that's one thing. And there's also kind of this idea of release and letting go. And I feel like when, you know, you hear people say, I just want to get through this, that, that may be part denial or, or that may be wanting to bypass some of the stages here. But there's also kind of a clinging to this idea of, how you want things to be rather than how things are. 
Can you talk about that kind of distinction between holding on to emotions and that idea of release or letting go? Yeah. So there is there is the idea that or we often carry the idea that we can release emotions in some in sort of a way that's kind of cathartic where ultimately it is a release into wherever and it's gone. And that can definitely happen. Usually for that to happen we need the circumstance to be a little more stable. So I may be carrying a lot of emotion, for example, around the fact that I'm not able to see a person who's significant in my life face-to-face right now. Mm -hmm. And I might have a lot of emotion around that. And then one day I have an emotional release. I'm crying for a long time and I feel like something's released. And yeah, it can be released because this circumstance actually for right now is relatively stable. I, this is a reality and I may not be able to see this person for a while. And so now my situation is stable. This particular circumstance is short term, yes, but permanent enough for me to have now caught up with it and be able to release. Sometimes we try to bring about release at times when actually we haven't caught up to that yet because we're still in that uncertain phase. Right. So the that phase of numbness, that phase of disbelief, that doesn't tend to meet release quite yet. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're there, we're still in that numbness, and we want to get to the release really quickly, but it's like we haven't settled yet. It's as if we're getting sh- shaken up, but while we're getting shaken up, we want to release, but it takes everything in us to just stay in the container while it's being shaken up. So that's like using a technique before maybe fully understanding the technique? And really using a technique maybe before or trying to reach to force a technique or a point in time where we haven't arrived yet. Yeah. It also is making me realize this is very helpful, Ghana, just for me. Uh, it, it's helping me realize that there's work to be done looking ahead. Like I need to tell myself that I, I, whatever coping mechanisms I'm using now, whatever release I'm thinking now, I need to expect a time when my life does stabilize to then address this, to sit with this and work through this, right? Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. we don't have the now what, right? Because we hear a lot of like, we're going to get you to the end of the semester. And it's like, that, that's, a, that's a finite game. And we're, we're not playing a finite game here. There's going to be longstanding repercussions and consequences of all of this for a long, long time. And, and we're going to be dealing, I mean, this is going to be generational trauma, right? I mean, people yeah. are growing up differently. People are living their lives much differently. And they're going to be thinking about the world and each other in different ways than, than we did two months ago, right? So, yeah, that, that's kind of like, well, and, yeah, and- go ahead, well, and it also speaks to how important we are as a community and that we support our students as a community. This is mm-hmm. how we we extend the care we can offer our students beyond this semester they're in our classrooms, right? Is we come together as a community, as an institution, and we agree to this commitment to mental health, right? Um, yeah. Right? Um, and we all... We really are all in this together and we all don't know together. So the student who says, I don't know how to work this and I don't know how to work the technology and my mic isn't working and this and that and the other, they're trying to have to learn that new information. That's only one level, right? Underneath it is all the other things that the student doesn't know 
about what will happen, what's happening financially, what's happening in terms of their work. So many people have been affected right on that front. All of that is lurking underneath and maybe very close to the surface of how do I turn in this assignment now that we've changed the format? And recognizing that this is important and we can do this right now and focus on the end of the semester for this, but what happens to all of that? All of that is still going on at the same time. So when we look at, you know, for example, those of us who get who get the care reports, the number of students have been impacted financially is huge. Right? We've had care reports in the hundreds right off the bat. And so, yeah, how about all of that and what what happens with all of that? And when we focus just on the class and just on the assignment. Yeah. What what about the rest of this and how do we adjust to all of that? And dare I ask, and I ask this as somebody who myself, I was a classroom faculty member for a number of years. So I taught at San Diego State and was a professor for in total for close to 20 years on that side of things, if you will, that we think the work that we assign and the material that students interact with is very important. And of course it is, but what value does it ultimately have without taking the fuller picture into consideration and without it basically being part of a holistic model? Right. So I've been holding on to this email from a student and I've been trying to think of a, a good place to bring it up. I think I think this is a good place because, and I'm not going to read the email word for word, and I'm not even doing this to self-promote, I promise. <laughs> but it, it addresses this. I created an assignment, a series of assignments for this student. And knowing that they're within the scaffolding of these larger things, important, right? Uh, And this student engaged them and I gave some feedback and this student wrote me an email. And again, this is, this is paraphrasing uh, that the student had a very hellish week. um, And um, she said, not exaggerating that my feedback were the only positive words she got during that week. And she very much wanted a win, some kind of win, any kind of win. And it was my feedback that she said she saw as a win. Um, And again, this is where I'll I'll leave the email behind because she shares some personal details about what she's going through. But but abstracting, it was her decision to do the assignment. And I'm just validating her work and celebrating, you know, uh, uh, an idea she shared as I do for most of my students. So this is not exceptional by any means on my behalf, but in this moment, it was received as exceptional, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, and it, it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about stability, the, the, what this student is going through and what is missing so severely right now is any kind of human connection for her specifically. And my little tiny comment, which really isn't that important, um, for her was a touchstone, right? Was, um, and, and it just, it strikes me how privileged we are as faculty to to help and and even in very small ways um and that we should be cognizant of that and and really take advantage of each opportunity as best we can absolutely and it's like your response to her is about that particular assignment in that particular content but it actually hits up on something much greater which is her feeling that she can do this that under these new circumstances she had a success she's yearning to have that sense of having had a success, experiencing something that's a success, and now she experienced it. That's huge. Yeah. And that's the much bigger picture that 
each of really our experiences now in this moment represent, and especially at a time when for a lot of students, they don't have a whole lot of other experiences. So for many of our students, especially if they were working and their work was impacted and they're not working anymore, what they're experiencing are classes and whoever they're living with and whatever family arrangements and circumstances are going on, and that's it. Many of the other things that were going on in their lives are on hold in a way that might be frightening. And so this is a moment where it's like, okay, yeah, I did this. I still managed to do this in the middle of everything else. So yeah, that's a really big deal. Got it. it kind of segues into this idea of, we've been touching on it a little bit here, but the social isolation that is happening right now. And maybe if you could talk a little bit about social distancing and and the consequences of that. I mean, social distancing is what we should be practicing, um, you know, in order to combat COVID-19. But I, I mean, as a sociologist, I can't help but think, what are the long-term consequences of this? What are the short-term consequences? What What is this doing to us when we know to kind of stay even further away from people than before and people are going out and seeing people in mass and i think even just that imagery creates more social distancing right i mean i feel like you know even for myself when i go out i'm kind of looking at my fellow people as as if they are diseased like i'm treating them as if they have it and right. they're now a threat to me right and, and what what could that be doing to our mental health or our, our kind of conceptions of, of of the social absolutely Yes, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think that there are two very clear ways of looking at this and people in general tend towards one camp or the other. So there is the camp of we're all in this together and how can we work together? And there's the camp of who's doing what that's not following the rules. Are you six feet away? Did you just do this? And, and those two areas. And I think one of the areas of growth for us as we move forward, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a moment, is kind of figuring out where we want to be and where we can be under the circumstances without forcing some kind of false reality on what's going on. I read early on um, something that um, suggested that instead of social distancing, we talk about physical distancing and social connection. Mm -hmm. And I've appreciated that. And I've um, thought about that a lot. That on the one hand, we absolutely are practicing physical distancing. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, one of the things that I will say for me personally, and I've heard it a lot from students, is actually because of the changes people are much more accessible. So I know this, so I can check in and text with, you know, yesterday I checked in with like 10 different people and within 10 minutes, they're all texting back because they're all available. <laughs> so it was like, I was like, oh, I shouldn't do, like I'm used to doing that. And then whoever gets back to me whenever, and here we go. And then two days later, somebody else gets back to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my phone's blowing up because they're all available and they're all responding. <laughs> and that is something that is definitely unusual that we've heard about this. I know all our counseling team, we've noted this as well as in our own lives, that students are connecting with people with whom they haven't typically connected before because it's been hard to find them. Mm 
and or you feel like, well, I don't know if I want to reach out. That person's busy. I don't want to bother them or whatever it is. And now we are available. We are able to come together. It actually is easier for us to sync up schedules. Things that people do virtually, you know, all these kind of virtual conversations, virtual meals, you know, let's all have coffee at the same time, dinner at the same time, whatever it is that actually people are more ready to do. And I think that is training. I think there are two things that actually we are able to tap into in the midst of all this that are really valuable for us moving forward. One of them is being able to respond more proactively than we might be in the past. So that reaching out and the other person saying, yeah, let's do this, where we're both more available than we might have been as opposed to, oh, you know, I have so much going on. And so, you know, maybe in, in next month, let's check in again, that I'm noticing a shift where people are much more available to check in. The other piece that I'm noting that I think is really valuable is that we are tapping in much more, not just on our outward focus towards other people, which is really important, but also our inward focus towards ourselves. That when I stay home, what could I be doing? So all these, you know, the, the different scenarios that we have on social media of people being like, this is what I cook today, which is also a connection, right? So it's a connection inwardly in terms of like, hmm, I've always wanted to try this. Okay. So kind of almost investing in the inner landscape as well as then the connection with other people saying, hey, check it out, look what I did here, or here's my hobby. I tried this, I never tried this before, but you know, I found some yarn and I thought I could try doing this. So just whatever it is that people now given a little bit more room and a little more space might be inclined to explore. And I think that's very valuable too. So that inner landscape and the outer landscape. But the outer landscape, yeah, can only really come together if ultimately we are thinking about this as a situation that we're in all together. And so building that social connection. Mm -hmm. I think if we think about this in terms of where we might be, so one area that we can be is somewhere that's kind of more of a fear zone. So I go to the store and maybe I spy some toilet paper and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to buy all this toilet paper before everybody else does. And then I'm told there's a limit and I'm like, oh, what do you mean there's a limit? I really need it. And, or I'm here looking for information that's anxiety provoking that may not necessarily be new information. So it's one thing to be informed. It's another to keep reading information that's now hyped up and very fear-based that doesn't actually include any new useful information. So I, I'm spending all my time doing that. That's very much living in a fear zone. Mm -hmm. That's different from if I choose to live in a learning zone where I think, okay, here's an opportunity while at the same time experiencing fear. And that's one of the things is these can be both and. So mm -hmm. I'm absolutely experiencing fear because this is an uncertain time and I don't know what might happen. And maybe I have very specific fears, very specific concerns that I'm worried about. But at the same time, maybe I'm learning something. I'm learning something about myself. I'm learning something about my friend with whom I'm connecting and we haven't connected for like two years because we never could sync up our schedules and now here we are. And then maybe there is even a growth zone for me. Maybe in the midst of all of this, I can think about how I could help other people. Let's say I'm a person who has wondered about sewing and I decide I could sew masks, for example, and figure out where to send them. Or I'm a person who reads about the situation of other people and figure that actually maybe there is something that I could do to help, even if I just reach out and say, 
you know, I read about you, I'm thinking about you, whatever it is, that there's room there for us to come outside of ourselves as well, again, while holding the fear, while holding the uncertainty. And so kind of seeing these different layers of potential growth within these circumstances that are very, very changed. I think there is the actual reality. And then there's what we see outside that is in part in response to the reality, but also in part preventive moving forward. And I think sometimes the things that are preventive end up looking like they're reality. Mm. So all of us wearing masks, most of us wearing masks so that people are not affected Mm -hmm. and not impacted and don't catch don't become ill. Mm-hmm. But the visual suggests otherwise. The visual suggests that actually everybody is ill and I need to be careful. Mm-hmm. And kind of drawing that line to say, okay, what's actually reality? And what's actually more something that's in place as a preventive measure? And so really discerning logically between the two and figuring out where then our place is in terms of learning and growth. That's the challenge, right? And it's, yeah. it's there's so many triggers just day by day uh, and for yeah. a variety of, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, conditions and experiences. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's like the limit, l- limiting the things that we can do out there. Mm-hmm. What I hear you saying is like giving us more time to kind of uh, explore that se- the, a lot of the self-care stuff that we say we have no time for right. and no space for because our lives are so much out there. And now we're kind of forced into this situation where our lives are in here. And yeah, I mean, I find myself doing more meditation. I find myself, you know, looking around and, and cleaning spots in, in, in my place that I, I hadn't before. That's awesome. Um, I, yeah, uh, all of the looking at books that I that have been sitting on the shelf for a long time. Um, what you said about social connection, I've definitely found that to be true. I connected with a couple of my childhood friends, and you know, we talked on and off for years. But you know, it had been about a year, year and a half before we last connected, and we got on a Zoom session, and we we're on there for like two and a half hours. And it was really great to catch up and, and to kind of uh, cope with them. And at the same time, you know, the question comes up of like, why don't we do this more often? Why does it take this yeah. for us to get this connection? And right. well, it's because of the reasons that you said, because we are, we have to look at things differently because our, our choices are now maybe not limited, but our choices are definitely different. They're different. Our priorities are different. Absolutely. Yeah. And I really hear those examples. I mean, if I think for myself, so the first weekend after the stay home order, I drove down to the beach. So I love going by the beach and by the water. And so drove down, walked along the beach because that was still okay. By the next weekend, that was not okay. So the beaches were closed. And so I drove down and I parked my car to look out at the water. And that was lovely. By the next weekend, that was also not a possibility because you couldn't park on the coast side anymore. And so then I drove down and I drove up the coast. By the last weekend, this past weekend, now we're at the point where they are saying that, well, it really should only be essential. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is, yeah, it's essential for my soul. But maybe I I will always know that going by the water is something that's very comforting for me. Let me see what else I have going here. And as I'm looking at home, yeah, now I see things that I wanted to sort through. They've always been there, but I haven't prioritized them. And I sort through them and I get a sense of satisfaction. And it felt very symbolic to me that I'm like, ah, okay. So I'm like out focused, out, out, out. But inwardly, literally in my own home, internally, Mm -hmm. here's something that I can sort through and come up with things. I'm like, oh. 
I didn't know I had this, which also felt very symbolic to me. Nice. Yeah. You know, you, you brought up this term, uh, Curry, were you going to go ahead? No, no, go for it. Oh, you, you brought up this term toxic positivity and that really struck me. Like I, I, I want to know more about that. Um, and, and I kind of want to know what is the alternative then? What is the alternative to toxic positivity? How, how can we maintain uh, positivity without it kind of overcompensating or getting to that point where now it is harmful for us to, again, kind of engage in that denial? So toxic positivity ultimately is false. And that's where the challenge lies. And toxic positivity is minimizing. So if someone says to me, I'm experiencing these difficulties, I say, yeah, but you know what? I have faith in you because you're strong and you're going to turn this around. Well, I pretty much haven't heard what they're saying and their concerns, right? And really being a realist and being in the present moment is what matters the most and actually is the most rewarding. And being in the present moment sometimes does involve sitting with difficult material. And one of the things I think that um, is really helpful for all of us to develop is that emotional flexibility. That emotional flexibility that is very much connected to um, higher levels of sort of mental health in the sense of being healthy mentally and emotionally is being able to shift between many different emotions. So I can be very happy when I hear good news. And at the same time, I'm able to be sad. I'm able to sit with fear mm -hmm. when they're there and when it's appropriate. So anytime we're in an emotion more than is appropriate for the circumstances there, that's where it's challenging. And positive emotions are the same as negative emotions. So just like even if good things happen and I always focus on the bad, and that's now a challenge emotionally. The opposite is also true. If I focus always on being like, yeah, but it's great no matter what. And, you know, we're, in, we're a star team and we're going to make it. And, yeah, we're in partnership here. Then also I'm not acknowledging yeah. the sort of the ups and downs of life, the mm -hmm. night and day, if you will, that those come together. It's like I only want to focus on the night or I only want to focus on the day rather than the two together. Healthy emotional functioning involves holding all these emotions and being able to switch among them. And when it comes time to listen to somebody else, meeting them where they are and recognizing that that's part of a much bigger patchwork. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's more of an authentic stability that you're building when you do that instead of one that is really shaky and that is contingent on you not kind of piling up all those things until point of collapse right right mm. exactly and just pushing them down and pushing them down and pushing down the difficult emotions because we're supposed to be showing some other ones that are more positive and then at some point that's where the difficult emotion just comes bursting forth and then we have an outburst at somebody who barely said anything because we've been pushing down all these challenging emotions and now suddenly we get angry. Yeah, mm. absolutely. That seems important for us as teachers to think about too, How because I think as a, an unrelenting positivity can be disruptive to relationship building and to the cohesion between within a group, right? And, and it's making me think about my face-to-face -face students. Um, we've been very direct about what we're going through because we're all going through it together going from a classroom to an, uh, a remote learning. For my online students, uh, I have one class that was eight week. So that class, I have also been very direct. We lost a week, we've got to deal with that, we're in this together. But I have another online class that 
sort of was they got an extra spring break and sort of and for me it was a little work to make it you know the 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 units kind of cohere the way they used to but i i find that i'm less we're in this together with them and more kind of business as usual we got this we're close to the end and so this this is making me think about i wonder what their specific experience is with me as their professor that's different with mm. other classes where i feel like i'm being much more transparent about what i'm going through mm. you know what i mean yeah um, i would be very curious yeah and not that i think that i'm I'm, I'm not yeah you know, that i'm deserving my, this particular online class i think i'm doing what i can to listen but but yeah i i uh, this is just making me reflect on on that yeah no i get that because it's like mm -hmm. we we were already online right mm -hmm. yeah. and we did lose a week but we can condense that down we know the routines already this is what you've expected to come to this space and do this in this way but again i think that maybe uh ignoring or, or neglecting the rest of everything else because they, they may have face-to-face -face classes that have now transitioned online. They may or may not have children at home that were once in school. They may or, you know, the, I, I think that we have to be aware of all of those things, but I'm much like you, like my mind just went to, we, you know, we're going to keep rolling because yeah. this is what we've already been doing. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you both say that because, yeah, what comes to mind is it's like with the classes that were face to face, you now all underwent a shared experience. So it's like you underwent actually a shared trauma and it may be what we refer to here as little t trauma. It's not like the big trauma, but it's an upset. It is something that made you have to respond differently and it was shared vis-a-vis -vis with your online class, it wasn't shared. You're both experiencing, so you on the one hand and the students on the other hand, you're all experiencing shifts, but you didn't experience the same shift together. Right. And that's a very different circumstance. And I think that's re really wise sort of, you know, food for thought about the fact that in fact, things may not look like they were shared because there isn't that Im immediate shared part. And at the same time, these are absolutely shared experience. So I think, yeah, it's, a, it's really a reminder for all of us yeah. to, to check in and do that. I know for me with our counseling team, because when we left Friday, March 13th, campus was still open. And that even though we pretty much knew we'd be working remotely, right, but the announcement hadn't come out. Mm -hmm. And then by the time we were starting up past spring break, then we had transitioned to working remotely, but we weren't face to face when we were making the transition to working remotely. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, I think that did make a difference vis-a-vis -vis if we had been. And so I, I really do see that juxtaposition and kind of as a reminder mm -hmm. of to notice that shared experience, no matter what the circumstances are. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm really pulling a lot from this conversation, got it. And I'm even thinking about sort of going forward, my own pedagogies. And I'm hearing you describing kind of like a, a proactive, responsive teaching uh, pedagogy, right? That's really defined by social connection um, um, by an inward orientation, and I guess what I mean by that in this context is not an outward outcome-driven pedagogy, but a, mm -hmm. a process-driven pedagogy, mm -hmm. right? Um, and with that also a presence, both a presence in the moment of that process, but a presence with students, right? Mm -hmm. willing to listen. But I think the most important thing that I'm pulling from what you've highlighted throughout this conversation is the student's ability to continue to make choices and to be empowered to make choices throughout a learning experience. So as we're getting close to the end of this conversation, we had asked, can you say something hopeful to us? <laughs> <laughs> and I actually think that we have talked about some hopeful things in the middle of this bigger 
picture that's more uncertain. And I think that's about the ratio that fits, right? That we have, and I mean, we are talking about a global pandemic, right? And within that, where are the pieces of hope that we see? And I definitely feel that some of the hope that we see is around what we're talking about, those connections in a new format, the connections outward with other people, and connections also, incidentally, for students I've heard from a lot, connections that have happened since going remote. Mm. So connections to online communities that they didn't have before in the classroom and outside of the classroom that are very powerful. And then the connections to ourselves, the inward connections and the building of those, I think those can move forward with a lot of strength throughout this process and after this process. The other piece that I will say too, is we as human beings are remarkably resilient. Mm. And I think it's something really to remember, we actually have the potential to adjust to remarkable shifts in circumstance. And we see it right now. Mm. We may be challenged emotionally in dealing with the shifts. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we are shifting our students who were taking on the ground classes are now interacting in an online format, even if they're struggling, even if they're frustrated, they're impatient, it's really difficult to do, they're doing it. And instructors have managed to take their classes online. However, again, challenging and difficult it's been. So we are remarkably resilient and we absolutely are able to make those changes. It just doesn't need to look that pretty making the change. And that's one of the things I think that can really lead us to struggle is feeling that we have to look a certain way and it has to be perfect and we have to be productive because we have this time. That's like, no, it can be messy and we can be dragged kicking and screaming and we can go move forward one step and 20 back, but you know what? We still move forward that one step. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's messy and it's ugly. And at the same time, we're shifting. It's, it's not lowering expectations, right? It's, it's evaluating our expectations and changing them and, and adjusting them accordingly and appropriately to the situation. Mm-hmm. This is a huge learning experience in and of itself. I think ultimately, what is a learning experience? A learning experience is that however much later I look back and I learn something. There is no doubt that we are going to learn something from this. And even if people say, oh, thank God that's over and I never want to go there again, that's learning in and of itself. Right. This is a learning experience. What we learn in the classroom is a piece of this much bigger learning experience that we're all going through right now. Yeah. 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 We, learned, we learned a lot from you today. So thank yeah. you so much, Gada. Thank you. I learned a lot talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. May I just give the phone number for health services and talk very briefly about our groups before Absolutely. we sign off? Yeah, let's so, do it. All right. So we are open answering the phone from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Those are our phone hours. We have appointment hours after that, but in terms of our phone hours, and our number is 760-795-6675, taking appointments remotely for both mental health and medical. And we also have a few groups So a couple of new groups that we've set up here. One of them is our emotional health support group during the time of the coronavirus pandemic, and that's Wednesdays, 3 to 4 p.m. And then we also have an art is healing group. So that's a chance to just participate, learn interactive creative art projects with things that people have around the home. So no experience, no art experience, no equipment, nothing like that needed, but just a chance to connect and kind of tap into one's creativity, and that's Fridays, 2 to 3 p.m. 
as well as our ongoing groups, the PRISM Collective, which is um, for LGBTQIA plus students and support group, and the Uprise groups for um, undocumented and um, mixed status students from mixed status families, and that's Monday nights and Tuesday nights. And PRISM Collective is Thursdays every other Thursday, noon to one. Any group that anybody wants to register for, please contact us at Health Services, and our email is MCC. SHS at miracosta.edu. So MCC, Miracosta College, and then Student Health Services, SHS at miracosta.edu. So that's my plug. And we hope to see students in groups and in session. And thank you again so much for having me. Thank you, Donna. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode was produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia created the show notes and manages our social media. Episodes of the Safe Topics podcast are now available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please download and subscribe. Thank you for listening.